Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Interviews, where I get to dig into delicious conversations with global leaders and I get to ask them about women in leadership, hear their stories and soak up their wisdom and perspective on life and leadership. I am thrilled today to be joined by Michelle Loder. Michelle, welcome. Thanks, Melissa. Great to be here. Okay, so I am going to jump straight into your bio so the audience knows who I'm talking to, and then we'll get into the conversation. So Michelle's a board and executive specialist. She's an inclusive and resilient leader with an endless curiosity to ask why. She's managing director at Future Leadership and has deep experience in people services, having worked in all areas of the human resource pipeline. She's a specialist in the changing world of work, the impact of artificial intelligence, and is passionate about changing the HR sector with technology and services for the future. Michelle graduated from Harvard Business School in Boston, and her versatility has been demonstrated as an owner, CEO, and director. Michelle's a former Telstra Businesswoman of the Year, and founding director of the Australian chapter of the International Women's Forum. As I said, incredible to have you here with us. I'm going to hand straight to you and say for anyone in our audience who hasn't had the pleasure of coming across you before, who are you as a human being, Michelle? (laughs) Thanks, Melissa. Um, Well, I'm a mum, first and foremost, and a wife, and um, I'm also a CEO and a managing director. Uh, And how I came to be here is through my career. is early in life, I was actually born and raised on a farm in regional Victoria. So I learned that kind of 24-7 work ethic from a very early age. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent my first working decade working in the hotel sector. So I worked for intercontinental hotels and I really, uh, I guess, was working when everyone else was playing uh, and learning and understanding service and um the big, the big world and how people behave in the big world uh, when they're away from home or when they're away from their natural environment. And in a way, it was 10 years of learning um, about behaviour uh, accidentally. I, I then went into working in high-volume workforces and I worked in labour um, and productivity and performance and quality and service um, for the next decade. Um, this decade that I'm in now, my third working decade, I've moved into the board and leadership space. Um, and and I guess I've brought the kit bag of things that I've learned the whole way along um, to what I'm what I'm doing now in this role. Fantastic. So I want to jump straight in. You know that I think we share a, a passion for seeing more females in CEO roles, but can I just ask what was it like when you stepped into your first CEO role? Do you remember the experience? Um, I do, and I remember thinking, do they realise do they realise what I've done and who I am and that I've never done this before? Um, and I think I actually articulated that when they when when I was first asked to be um, to be a CEO. Um, but I remember being I definitely remember being the only female in most of the rooms that I was in, um, and I was quite young. So you know, being early career. Um, I've always had a level of confidence, I suppose, about myself and about my abilities and a work ethic that will get me to know something if I don't know it. And and always been a bit of a believer, start before you're ready, you know, say yes and work out how later. Um, so I've always had quite a healthy risk appetite around that. But I do remember feeling um, on that occasion and on plenty since um, 
this is an experience I've never done before. How do I go about approaching it? Where do I start? Um, and, yeah, and being the only woman. Mm. I remember you sharing with me a point in your career where I think it was this that big sort of phase ended, that CEO role ended, and there was a decision point around where did you go next or what did you do next, I think. Can you... I'd love to understand how did you work that out? Oh, okay. Yeah. So that was a couple of roles on. Yeah. Um, but I rem- yeah, I remember finishing a role and I was working for a company that was listed on the Japanese Stock Exchange at the time. So a really big global company, um, lots of people, lots of moving parts, et cetera, et cetera. And I had become a mum in the kind of five or six years prior and I had two kids in fairly quick succession of each other. Um, and so I, I suppose I'd started to think about more intentionally about my career and where I was going to to go to and take that to. And um, I remember thinking, how, how do you choose? Like when you've been in the big engine, the big corporate engine, how do you choose not to do that? Um, and how do you choose to, in my case, become an entrepreneur? Um what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, and I've always, I, I was born into a, a family of entrepreneurs. So um, so I suppose it was in me, but it was also a really big leap to decide to get out of the the um, big organ, end of town and the big organisations and get into more um, niche. But for me, it was about wanting to, knowing the greater good, knowing what I wanted to achieve out of that and kind of where I wanted to go to. And it's probably... I've actually never thought this through, but it's probably the first time in my career that I've actually been quite intentional about making that decision and that shift because until then my career had been kind of lots of doors where someone had said, you know, open it a tiny little bit and said, you want to come in here? And I'm, yep, for sure, in I come. Um, Or here's a passageway over here, you want to have a look down that and I would just run on down that passageway. So... And what was the trigger, do you think, to, you know, do you think you would have got there anyway in terms of being intentional about that next step or was there a definite trigger for you that sort of occurred? Yeah, maybe. Uh, I mean, it probably sounds a bit cliche, but I, I know when you've got kids and at the time my kids were, uh, you know, four and five or five and six or something like that, um, and just at that age where they're starting to say, when I want to grow up, I want to be. When I want to grow up, I want to be. And and I was really conscious that um, that book, The 100-Year Life, had just come out and I was really conscious my kids are going to turn 100. That means they will work until they're 80. That's 20 years more than those in the generation before us will work. Um, And what does that mean about how we learn and how we take ownership for our career pathways, et cetera, et cetera? Um, And I was really conscious that for my kids, um, 80% of the jobs that they're going to do or the careers that will exist when they get to that age, the jobs haven't even been named yet. Like they don't even exist. So there's this huge unknown territory and, and maybe I felt a bit of a self-imposed responsibility to be able to help them navigate that and then that perhaps led to a responsibility to help others navigate that as well. And that's how I kind of consciously chose to be in the board and the executive space um, and to shift the conversation away from what I honestly had felt was quite a circular conversation the, the decade prior, which is 
um, a lot of conversations with the same people about the same topics and not seeing the dial shift on that. Mm. Um, and so I'd been in that company through multiple ownerships for 10 years. That's a really long time now to stay in one place. Um, and I'd grown a lot and been exposed to a lot. But I guess I just saw that as an opportunity to to, to take stock and to to really consciously decide what I wanted to do next. I'd love to pick up that question around 10 years is a long time to stay somewhere now. Like if you're talking <laughs> to people, um, you know, if you're guiding people on, yeah. you know, navigating their career and developing their leadership and things like that, I mean, is there still a place for people to stay at a company for a long time or what? what's your sort of perspective on that? Yeah, I, I, I think there is. Um I think as our world continues to evolve, and I'm a massive believer, there's a place for everyone, no matter where or what they want to do. You know, I was with um, one of our senior leaders in our team this morning, and we were talking about growth for them as an individual. And we were talking about, but we need all types of people, you know, we need people who are happy to come to work each day, complete a task that they enjoy to do. Um, we need other people who are very hungry. We need other people who are extremely curious. We need other people who are very detailed. So I think, yes, there is still a place for people to stay a long time in a career. It's about them and where they want to be. Mm-hmm. But we're increasingly seeing um, this the rise of the interim, you know, the rise of the person who wants to apply a certain set of their skills to a problem, for mm-hmm. solution, um, and quite often we'll see that meaning shorter tenure. The other thing that I think is, um, and I see this in a lot of my my personal peer cohort, is people have become a lot more curious about what these other opportunities look like and what, you know, what the future of sectors look like. So we think about like some of the sectors and the pathway for those in the next five years, like healthcare or construction or education, um, no one's really sure about what that's going to look like in five years' time, right? Yeah. So so people have become a lot more curious about how they transfer the kit bag of stuff that they've learned until now um, into another place or another sector or whatever it might be, and I think that's made the fluidity greater. The, the average executive role in Australia, I've been in, in this job for three and a half years. Mm-hmm. When I started, it was just over six years. It's down in the threes now. Yeah, okay. I want to get into some of that with you. Um, before I go there, though, I'm just going to stick with the CEO theme for a minute yeah. and just finish off that part of the conversation. Why do you think there are not more female CEOs? A lot of a lot of reasons. A lot a lot of women are self-selecting now not to be CEOs, particularly after the COVID environment that we've lived through. Uh, equally, I don't think we look hard enough. I don't think we look in the right places, um, and I don't think I'm super super passionate about the topic of capability for the future. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that we're trying hard enough to. Um, create opportunity or bring opportunity um, for women Um, and equally the risk appetite and the general appetite for a lot of women um, is that that they decide they don't you know they don't want to do that and I think that's why that rise of the interim that I was talking about is pretty exciting for us because we can see um, different people and different capabilities coming to the table in different ways and it might not be in the historical paradigm of C-suite 
as we've thought about it. Yeah, okay. I, um, I'm always sort of interested about whether people self-selecting, as you said earlier, about perhaps I don't want to continue down that path, is because of the models of CEOs they've seen historically. So the perception around what that role entails. Yeah, and the system that we live in, you know, uh, and the way we make decisions in particular organisations. I mean, there's there's layers and layers of barriers to um, to achieving it. Uh, as a firm, I mean, we put senior executives into roles in one of our businesses, in the Fisher business, and that business has been going for 20 years now and 52% of the people we have put into roles in that time have been women. Mm. So we were batting kind of way above our average putting women into senior roles. What's interesting is we work primarily in that business in the social impact sectors. So where we see a lot of really senior women be really successful in the health space, in the education space, in um, not-for-profit, in government. So that's that stat. I don't have the same stat for yes. the corporate and public um, roles, but we see a lot of those statistics published for us um, and we know that those numbers are tiny and if not, staying stagnant, decline. I want to kind of jump into, you know, I think leadership is challenging. Um, there is so many things going on for leaders to consider. The last couple of years has been really challenging for people. And I just would love your perspective on, you know, I think leadership can be a really joyful thing, um, a very rewarding and joyful thing. I mean, what's your perspective on that? And do you think it's possible in the environment right now to actually experience, you know, enjoy leading people? Um, well, I do. Yes. I enjoy it. I, I get joy from it. But I think the last few years, you know, most of the leaders that I know and I spend my whole life in that environment um, are fatigued. Yes. You know? And what we're looking at as we look forward to the future is a, a compounding effect of not only where we've been in the last few years, um, but also this kind of mountain in front of us of the growing complexity of the issues that we've got to deal with. Yes. And and the most common thing that we see in that is confusion about, well, where do I start? Like, where do I even begin with this big, long list of priorities that that I've got? Um I was I was listening to someone the other day talking about uh, should the work that you do be fun? Yeah. Um, and, and I was thinking, oh, what would, what's my opinion on that? And, and I think we should have fun, absolutely, and I, I love a good laugh and I, uh, um, I I love a bit of fun, but I guess work is called work because it's work. If not, it would be called fun. Um, but should we enjoy what we do? Yeah, we should. And should it um, contribute to a greater good that we care about? I think more so now than ever in my career because um, – of that intersection between our our home life and our work life, and you know, work crept into our homes. Um, for those of us who weren't already living a, a pretty integrated life, it crept into our homes the last two or three years. And I'm in Melbourne, so more so in Melbourne than in most places in the world. Yes. Um, and and that you know that sort of changed our family dynamic. It changed the way our families think about work. It changed the way we think about work, and it kind of made leaders who weren't used to the integration on 
all the time and that was a real change and is that joyful um well you'd have to put a big question mark against that I think if you're not able to compartmentalize and I'm kind of lucky that I'm able to compartmentalize but I, I have had lots of periods of time where that clash is just like you've got a child, you know, um, and I can't tell you how many calls I've been on and I'm sure you've been on plenty of them, just closing that door over there that my child's behind, you yes. know. Um, and then we saw the, no, 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 I'm not, I'm opening it and here's my child up on my lap and this is the reality of the life that I live and I lead and and I think we're still really learning that. Um, we're still really learning how to have this integrated environment where we work at home, we work at work, we work on the run, um, but those demands of our family or our caring responsibilities or our love for exercise or whatever it might be still exist outside of work. So what are the capabilities that you think people should be investing in, um, you know, and what do you think the future of work kind of looks like? Um, well, the capabilities. I mean, this is a this is a hot one for me. I've kind of spent probably the last year of my life working out what are the capabilities that we need for the future, um, and we've built this capability framework around, um, I guess, around four elements, and they are um, how I think, how I connect, how I lead change, and how I treat others. Yes. Um, now, the language that we use tends to be pretty human because that's kind of how we think, but that, that I think is probably a sign as well that, again, we're su living super integrated lives now. Um, we're doing a piece of research at the moment, like a voice of the customer piece of research at the moment, and we're talking to hundreds of leaders around the country um, about what, um, what they think the biggest issues or the biggest challenges for leaders right now are. Yeah. And it's really interesting the things that are showing up. So talent acquisition and retention is showing up as number one. Yes. Um, dealing with cyber and emerging tech is number two and future organisational growth and, like, knowing how, where to target, which markets or segment to target, how to scale for that, et cetera, is the third one. And so... Um, I think it's interesting that they're the things that we're starting to see rise from the top. Um, but but really the idea of how I how I lead others and and self and how I manage myself, yeah. um, but particularly how, how I how I get things done, um, is a huge one. And so um, I'm hearing, and it fits right in with all of that. I'm also yeah. hearing a lot of leaders talking about their. Um, their leadership styles perhaps not resonating um, and you know for a number of people they may have had to kind of rely on certain skills and you think of old school leadership command and control as an example yeah um, you know some people probably still operate well a lot of people I think still operate in that mode but a lot of people also had to lean on that mode kind of heavily over the last couple of years and I'm hearing a lot of people saying it's just not resonating anymore and are you hearing that? Like, and what do you think are some of those sort of capabilities or things people need to consider bringing to their leadership style to change? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I reckon one of the things I'm seeing play out the most around this, Melissa, is the hybrid workforce, yeah. right? So, uh, um, and I'm a good example of this. I've led these kind of complex businesses where, where I've always had people away, right? So physically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're physically 
particularly been in another country or another state or whatever it might be, but I also get my leadership energy from being around people. Yes. So so the, the when the offices open back up, like I you couldn't get me back into the office fast enough. And we're hearing lots of leaders talk about that. Like I want to be able to see and hear and work with um, my people. I think that's the hybrid working leadership is the biggest issue we're seeing. I'm not hearing so much of the my historic style doesn't resonate. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're all on a continuous cycle, right? How I've learnt to lead in my very first general management job mm-hmm. um, was re- like if I if I pulled that out and tried to play that that bag today, it wouldn't land, you know. Um, and I work in a professional services company now, but when I was in the blue collar space, I you know I might have led differently again. So you've got to apply your style of leadership to the situation. Um, I mean, personally, the thing I struggle the most with is everything is just changing so much. And so, and I'm really curious and really interested and one of those people who just surrounds myself with the smartest people that I can. If I was a different style of person, I reckon I'd really struggle with that because I'd be wanting to be a lot more knowledgeable about every single thing that I'm involved in. And I think that was... um, you know, if I think about the leaders that I grew up around kind of 20 years ago, they were they were really strong experts and they knew the answer. Like you asked the question and they knew the answer and yet leadership has shifted so far from that now. And so I, I suppose it depends on the personality type, the environment that they're in and how that's playing out for them. So who, what sort of leadership style is most successful today? Like what do you... What would you call that? Oh, ooh, that's a curly one. Um, I disclose my bias here first. Yes. A- authentic, um, and that's why why my bias because that's probably the thing that's worked most successfully for me. Um, you know, the the human leadership element, this idea of care, um, and this idea of uh, treating others well, um, I think, is is a really important element of successful leadership. I think um, open mindedness, like a willing to know and understand that what you thought maybe as late as last week or maybe yesterday uh, is can be redundant, and finding a way to be comfortable with that and to bring the person who is the expert to that um, and and therefore a willingness to learn, you know, a willingness to unlearn and relearn at a, at a, at a really strong pace. Uh, we don't talk about continuous improvement much anymore. You know, that was a real thing in the 80s, continuous yeah. improvement. Um, and I feel like there's a resurgence in that. You know, the the last decade we've talked a lot about fail, fail fast, move forward, all of that type of thing. But I wonder if that's actually right. I wonder if we would be better to say, well, we don't have to fail to be successful. It might not be perfect, but what have we learned from that and how do we move forward? Um, and I, as I think about all of the businesses that I've worked in and all of my 
personal failures and successes and my parenting failures and successes. Yeah. Um, that's the thing that's kind of been successful is, you know, you, you fall but you hope you haven't fallen so far that you've broken something um, and then what do you learn from that and how do you do it differently? And I think that's a really important part of, of future fit leaders now. Let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. What do you call out as the hardest point in your own career? Um, oh, I don't. I don't call out a hardest point. Um, let me think about that. Um Becoming a parent was a lot harder than than anything I've done in my career. I reckon. Yeah. Or maybe it was balancing becoming a parent and having a career at the same time. Um, I think, and and you know, I don't know if you have children, but but I had children, and when I had my first child, I was like, okay, well, okay, well, you know, actually being pregnant for nine months, it can't get much harder than that, right? I was very unwell for my entire pregnancy. Right. I was the person who got on every aeroplane and just stole everyone else's um, sick bags from the back of their seats and put them in my seat for my flight. Uh, and my nine months both times was like that. And I and I remember one of my aunties saying to me, you know, if you're um, if you're sick when you're pregnant, then your child will be fabulous, you know, and if you have a great pregnancy, there's going to be something hard about childbirth. Well, no, childbirth was hard and then <laughs> um, and then a newborn was hard and then a one-year-old was hard and then having a one-year-old and a two-year-old was hard. And so at every milestone I kept thinking, it won't get any harder than this, you know. Um, and so I think, I think maybe there's always been a bit in me that has been, well, how hard can it be? Like just have a go at it. Um, and my career has been the same. Um, have a go at it, but at so many different milestones, I thought it can't get any harder than this. I remember running hotels and, and I used to be the night manager for a hotel back before the casino was built in Melbourne when the temporary casino was in the World Trade Centre. I was, uh, and I used to run the hotel overnight. Yes. And what you see people do from a behavioural sense and the situations you find yourself in as a, young female leader um, was gobsmacking and I remember thinking it can't get any harder than this um, and what you find inside hotel rooms, um, it can't get any harder than this, but it does, you know, yeah. and then and then you take on bigger responsibilities and bigger accountabilities and things work or don't work and there's that really kind of high feeling when you get it right or when your team get it right or when you win or you successfully buy something or sell something or um, merge something or whatever it might be. Um, but living through that for the first time um, and and if you change enough in your life, your life's a whole lot of first times, um, it can be really, it can feel like at every moment it can't get any harder than this. So, so I've done some of them. I was going to say, does it feel like that right now? 
Um, it feels, you know, right now I feel like the opportunity, the job that I'm in now, I feel like the opportunity in front of us to help boards and executives be ready for the future is giant. It's incredibly overwhelming because of the complexity of issues. Um, and with experience, I think probably what I love most about this job is we've, we're collecting founders here. So we're bringing together kind of niche companies that are doing really great work, but we're working together to hopefully amplify the, the word and the message about future capability. Um, and so I, I feel like right now I feel like it's more of an opportunity. Um, even though it's self-imposed, I feel a huge responsibility with that as well, though. Um, and I do feel like when we we were with a, a big company yesterday talking to them about um, what their future workforce needs to look like, and I did have that feeling of, okay, this is, this is big and you're looking to us to help you solve for this and no one else has solved for this yet. Yes. So because our environment is shifting and hybrid work is so different and technology is emerging and um, employee expectations are shifting and changing, um, organisations are looking to partners who can help them solve for something that no one else has solved for. And so that can be a bit overwhelming but exciting. Oh, and I love that. You know, I just think that's that's why we do it, right? That's a great big meaty problem to get stuck into to to think about solving. I um, couldn't help but bring up at this point in time that I um, I was using Chat GPT the other day, and I thought I'd incorporate it in our conversation in one one way or the other. So I asked Chat GPT um, if it could provide me with three words to describe you. And the three words that came back were dedicated, collaborative and compassionate. And it made me think of it just when you talked then about bringing groups together, um, which, you know, I think is such a, a critical skill for leaders right now, um, you know, to solve these big media problems. So um, can I just ask you about AI? You know, you list it down as one of the areas of your sort of expertise. What, what about it? From what angle? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's probably more an area of um, of importance than expertise. It's yeah. it's so important for us. You know, dig, when we look at our capability framework for the future, digital literacy is is huge. And that's, you know, that's got data, cybersecurity, um, utilisation, privacy, all of those elements to it. But when we think about the impact of, of AI and the impact that AI has had to date on our workforces, I mean, the big workforce changes of the different decades um, and de generations have revolved around and will continue to revolve around AI. Um, and I think as we as we're approaching you know, these multi-generations that we've got in the workforce now and we're approaching a point where a lot of our decision makers still have a very low level of tech literacy mm -hmm. um, or digital literacy or cyber awareness or data and privacy knowledge. Um, I think it's a real area of interest to us because of that that role that we have in influencing others. Um, and, and I think about digital as a mindset. Right? Mm. as a as a way of thinking and and not so much as um, a piece 
of what we do, right? So it's not the CIO's responsibility. It's not the tech partner that you partner with responsibility. It's not your cyber team or your cyber partner or your data people. It's it's for all of us. And I think that's why I'm um, really interested in making sure that I stay up to date with everything that's happening um, and also that my mind stays really open and aware that, um, you know, chat GPT and all of the others yeah. are, are here and they're a reality. You know, we were, just, we were speaking this morning with our, our org psych team about um, how far off is it before CVs um, and psychometric assessments, uh, we haven't got it yet, but how far off are we, those being able to be um, completed? I'm not giving anyone ideas here. Um, <laughs> Completed. Yeah, so I mean, it's a reality in the education sector. Absolutely. Um, I was listening to, um, actually, it was a Brene Brown podcast recently, and she was speaking to two authors, and their name escapes my mind right now, but yes. it was a book. I think the book is called Digital Mindset, something along those lines. It's it's a fairly recent book, and it was so interesting how it was talking about the fact that they're modelling off of um to be considered fluent in a language, you need to know about 3,000 words. A native speaker would know about 12,000 words, I think. My numbers might be slightly off. Mm -hmm. But it was making that case that it's important for all of us to get to the point of fluency with regards to a digital mindset and our understanding so that as decision makers, we, we can actually have a voice in these conversations. Yeah, and, and I think... um. I mean, it's, it's speaking of overwhelming areas, right? The whole digital literacy um, landscape is is pretty overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and for those of who, those people who work in it all day, every day, full time, we we did a book launch earlier this week for Dr. Catherine Ball. I don't know if you know Catherine. Yes, but she wrote the book Converge, and so we launched her book in our offices this week with a few hundred leaders in our ecosystem, and we had lots of conversation about why and how she wrote this kind of tool as she thinks of it, which is different chapters about the specialist areas that might help you begin the conversation. And I really think in so many ways, that's where we are. We, we're simply at the beginning of the conversation um, and and the, the pace at which that conversation is needing to happen and we are needing to learn is um, mind-boggling. So our audience, and obviously we're inclusive and welcome anybody to listen to the podcast, but at this stage, you know, the majority of people, um, probably sort of 80%, are probably 35 to sort of 55, primarily female or identifying as female. And I just wonder, we've just given a whole conversation about the benefits of getting into digital literacy and really making sure that you don't fall behind in that. If you had to call out two other areas that you think people should really invest some time in their leadership capability, what would it be? Um, one of them I think would be the point that I was I was actually just thinking about the three areas that people have raised to us in yes. that survey or in our, our research um, that they see as the issue. So one of them is the future of organisational growth, you know, and so how am I going to solve the problems, whatever they are, that I'm here to solve for within my organisation? Um, in a successful way for the future. Now, 
we might have historically called that strategy maybe. Um, but the intersection between strategy and leadership and my role in that, my, my role to um, be visionary, my role to ensure we build a vision that is achievable and applicable, but also that it's, um, you know, it's hitting the issue or the problem that I'm here to solve for. I reckon that would be one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second one is how am I going to get there? Like who and what am I going to use to get there? So that's all around talent, talent retention, talent utilisation. You know, we, uh, I kind of think about that through the lens of how do you get the right people at the right table at the right time? Um, and that's key to leadership, I think. Quick, quick question about um, gig work. Yeah. Question I hear about gig work. I think historically the model was more suitable to people who were prepared to work for short stints and didn't necessarily need to rely on it as an income. So therefore, it didn't always shape up as an attractive sort of proposition as an alternative. Has that changed? It's dramatically. Yes. Even in even in the last three and a half years, I've been here in this in this leadership company, I guess, um, and maybe not surprisingly, because we have a business called Gig Executive. Uh, we built that because we thought people between thirty and eighty wanted to work differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we put the sign on the roof for Gig Executive, the supply, so the talent, was mainly, to your point. 55 to 80. They were people who had worked decades of their career, probably were in a financial position or situation to be able to, you know, not have work for six months if they didn't want to uh, or, or if they couldn't get it and they didn't have private school fees anymore or they didn't have um, a mortgage anymore or they didn't, whatever their competing priorities were. Um Roll forward three years, our supply has completely shifted. Um, supply is still greater than demand. Yes. More people want to work as um, flexible executives or gig executives than ever before. Um, so demand is still catching up. We're still educating the market that you don't have to think traditionally about your executive team or your executive pipeline or your board for that matter. Um, you know, you don't have to think in such a, a structured and fixated way as perhaps you traditionally would have. Um, but we've got we've got what we call permanent giggers. Yeah. Um, and these are people who are career gig gig leaders, and they are in many cases technical or change specialists. So they might be in finance, they might be in HR or transformation, um, they might have a niche skill like policy or infrastructure creation etc um and they're just deploying from one role to another Mm. and so we have giggers who have worked basically one job after another job and we we know they're coming off a job in july and we know they're going somewhere for august and then we'll put them back out um into the next gig executive role the month after that so another fascinating piece in that kind of puzzle to kind of I also want to ask your opinion because I saw some research, I think it was only released yesterday, um, but it was to do with the um, trial in the UK. I think there were about 60 companies involved in the four-day working week trial over there and they've just um, released some results on that where sort of 90% of the companies who took part are going to continue it. So that's four days a week 
um, but no loss of pay. And they saw some interesting, it's, I mean, it's super early, but some interesting statistics around less employees leaving, um, absenteeism was down, stress was down, mental health was reported as up. Like, do you, what, how do you feel about the four day working week? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of companies here who yeah. have adopted that. Um, I think the UK have been, you know, we just spoke about the the gig market or the interim market. They, they're kind of 10 years, eight to 10 years ahead of us as a country in terms of adoption of gig workers. Um, that's been kind of a mainstream way to bring talent into workforces. And, in fact, in the government over there, it's, it's um, – a really routine way to bring talent in and out of government. Um, so I think we often we often lag the UK when it when it comes to those type of things. But there's a lot of companies here now who are who are doing four days, and we're seeing in our executive search business, we're seeing huge flexibility around that with executive roles and people taking a much more outcome focused approach. Mm. Um, most of the people that I know that run four-day weeks or work four-day weeks um, actually still do the same outcome and sometimes the same hours that they would. It's actually about um, a flexible mindset and about particularly for the women that I know that work four days, um, it's knowing that if I don't want to do it, I can play tennis or I can um have Friday lunch club or I can do whatever it is that that I want to do or I can study or I can um, go to a yoga camp or I can do whatever I want with that day if I choose to. Equally, if I choose to, I can work a lot of people I know now work six hours a day, five days a week. Okay. Um, And they'll work late on a Thursday because they, um, they run in the morning and they'll work early on the Friday because they finish at 3 o'clock or whatever it might be. So yeah. um, I'm a real advocate for outcome over input. Yes. Um, and always have been. that That's the productivity mindset in me. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of discovery and exploration around this. Um, and a lot of our candidates in both in the gig business and in the search business are coming to us now saying, I only want to work four days. Yeah, interesting. Okay, fantastic. So much for people to consider as they're listening to this, both in terms of, you know, if you're leading teams um, um, or aspiring to grow into sort of leadership roles as well. Can I ask you the final question that I ask everybody, which is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? Brave feminine leadership. Um, In terms of behaviour, I think it's authenticity. I, th- I I love that Oscar Wilde quote, you know, be yourself because everyone else is taken. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love the idea of of that and I think today that's really important because of all the things we've talked about, about the intersection of work and life and like my little kids, they, my girls are 9 and 10 and they need me to be their mum and they don't really care if I'm on a call with a in a boardroom, um, they just see me as being in my office and and they need me or they want me. Um, and so sometimes I'll have to be incredibly authentic about that with whoever I'm working with. Um, so, yeah, behaviour, I think, be yourself. 
But in terms of action, um, I think it's undeniable that we need systematic change. You know, what got us to here will not get us to where we need to get to. Um, And I think so often those of us making the decisions in leadership roles about the system that we live in and be that government, business um, or, or community, um, it can be hard. I often think about it as, you know, if you're travelling, you kind of lift your head up and you go you go somewhere and you see, you can see the system so much more clearly than you can if you're running around your own system. Yes. Um, and so I think as we're busily going about our, our day, we often don't lift our heads up and we need to. Um, I also think that um, we have, we're not getting the diversity and the spread of capability right and that means uh, for those who have the space, they must use the space in the right way. Uh, and so bravery for me in that regard is making sure that minorities, underrepresented groups, people who don't have a voice, um, who can actually help us lead change and make the system more equal, take more long-minded approaches to things, probably have a more um, rounded stakeholder mindset. Um those of us who have the space, we must use that space to to get the space for the others, if that makes sense. Um, and so I think the courage that you talk about needs to come from those of us who are fortunate enough to have a voice. Um, and, and many of those listen, I think, to your um, to your great work. Um, but we have to have the courage to to, to do that and influence the decision makers um, and bravely advocate to bring more diversity of capability to the table um, and equally make sure that the environment is receptive enough once we get it there. I just wonder, thinking about the listener audience being between, you know, 35 and 55 or 60, um, I wonder how we're all thinking about ourselves as individuals. And I'm I'm doing this all the time, you know. Do I know enough? Have I surrounded myself with the right people? Am I learning enough? Am I hearing enough? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we're doing enough as individuals to augment the skills that we have. And that's not unlearn, relearn. It's not fail and get better. It's am I am I doing enough in this continuous augmentation? Um, and how am I doing that and where am I finding that? And maybe you're creating um, an environment where people can do that. We've recently built the Future Exchange community as well, um, which we'd love you to to play in and be part of, Melissa, because it's about building community, building capability and making sure you're future career ready. And I wonder as leaders if we often leave ourselves to the last and too much and we don't augment our own skills enough and we don't think about our future being career ready and and if people are thinking about wow I'd like to become a gig executive one day or I'd like to have a portfolio role or I'd like to work flexibly we build that future exchange community to start that conversation I um I love that and there's one of the key things I've taken out of I mean I'm I I'm now at 80, it'll be 100 conversations by the time we finish this series. And one thing yeah. that I have clearly taken out of all of those conversations is that, like, leadership is a continuous learning journey and you can't afford to put yourself on the back burner. You know, it's it's so important to make the space to invest, to keep yourself fresh and, you know, kind of 
vibrant about your leadership as well. So I so agree. So yes, we've got to connect and hear all about um, all about that. Yeah, because future fit is about us too, right? Yes. And if we're not future fit, how are we getting anyone else to the future? Absolutely. So fantastic. Thank you so much for joining the conversation, Michelle. I've really enjoyed it. And, you know, I could go on for a long time because I think we're both passionate about um, about this subject. But I so appreciate you joining the conversation and adding your voice. Oh, thanks, Melissa. Thank you for all the work that you do to bring people's stories and people's passions together. Um, I really believe if we all partner together on this, you know, partnership is the new leadership. There goes that collaborate. <laughs> Brilliant. And that was the end of another podcast conversation. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I often hear from leaders who felt inspired by the conversations and are ready to put themselves first. And so I wanted to take a brief moment just to share how I've helped hundreds of women just like you become crystal clear on the exact steps they should be following right now to lead an intentional and sustainable life without second guessing themselves so that they can maximize their influence and impact. I've put some details into the show notes and there's a link there where you can find out some more about our signature Elevate and Influence program. While you're there, take the time to sign up for our Sunday inspiration email series. Have a brilliant day.